0: And please, take your Bibles out and turn to Matthew chapter 4. It's on the insert as well. We just left the baptism of Jesus. That official declaration, that divine declaration about Jesus' role as the Messiah, who is coming to give himself as the sacrifice. God, the triune God, declaring that he is the righteous substitute. Uh, The new Adam, or the second Adam, as we have uh, learned to call him. We've seen through Genesis all the way, and now jumping over to our study of Matthew, now the second Adam has come, the seed of the woman, who will come to crush the head of the serpent. And that's where we left. God declaring, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And he's going to begin his active obedience of the Father on full display. He'd been obedient to that point, but now with specific reference to the mission of representing us and going to the cross to pay for our sins. This is my son whom I am well pleased, God declares, of Christ. And he goes from there, not right into public ministry, but there's one thing first that must happen. As the second Adam, he has to undergo the same test the first Adam underwent and failed at. That's what we have here, the second Adam meeting the devil. Here as I read God's holy word, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God... All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit As we open to your word this morning on your day, please encourage your saints here gathered by the witness of your Son in this encounter with Satan. And you said you were well pleased with Jesus, your beloved Son, and we can see why. We worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach us now. Equip us now. Amen. So far, I've mentioned many times from this pulpit throughout the preaching of the word how Jesus serves as the last Adam, the second Adam, the new Adam, however you want to phrase or typify that he is the one to be our new representative, that we might escape the judgment we have under the first Adam. That is definitely the big picture message of this occurrence that Jesus passes where the first Adam fell. I think we can all see that very clearly on display. Even the essence of the kinds of things the devil does aren't new. The same kinds of temptations that he puts before Jesus. But I want you to also know a secondary application of this passage. Jesus could have repelled Satan in many ways. He himself, the Son of God. But he specifically uses a tactic that is for us to emulate as we also face temptation. Now, we face it from the devil too. Now, it, it gets worse. The devil's the originator of sin by that first temptation, but as a result, our flesh is also tainted. So we will be tempted to sin even if the devil himself didn't do the tempting because our flesh is affected by that sin. So we've got yeah, the devil roaming out there. He's somewhat limited. He's not omnipresent. There's 8 to 10 billion people on the planet as he spent specific time with you. I'm not sure the importance level any of us get to in that level. He has demons, but even they are limited in number. What's not limited is the vestiges of Satan, our flesh, that still even as born-again believers, we know we still struggle with a corruption that we're constantly trying to mortify, to kill. And then, of course, on top of that, if that's not enough, we have the world system that's bent the knee towards Satan. So temptation comes to us in all sorts of forms, the devil, our flesh, and the world. We all relate with it. How can we fight temptation that is besetting us, that's besetting you right now? i sure there's something in your mind, some temptation you're dealing with. Well, this episode has a big level meaning for sure, but it also has some practical application for how any of us, the children of God, can say no to temptations that come. And we'll see that unfold in this this whole episode that's so famous, this temptation or testing of the Messiah King. Now, as we consider the passage, let's be refreshed about what Satan's main goal is. Uh, Satan's personal mission is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's what he's about, uh, to bring chaos and destruction and to distract people from God in his glory, to steal God's glory if he can. And his chief tactic is deceit and lying. To sow seeds of doubt where God's truth is. He does this over and over again, unabashed, and you can be sure how he'll come at us. In this light, with Jesus in this episode, his main goal is to make Jesus doubt what was just declared. This is my son whom I am well pleased. He wants Jesus to be shaken, He wants to test him, to tempt him away from that security so that he follows his own desires and not the desires of God the Father, the Godhead, the mission given to Christ. He wants Jesus to be distracted away from, ultimately, the cross. That's what he's working for here. But what we see is Jesus passing the test that was failed by the first Adam. And that proves that he is our worthy substitute. Where paradise was lost with the first Adam, here paradise is regained by the second Adam. But he also, in so doing this, demonstrates timeless defenses against the devil. Let's look at the episode as it unfolds, verse 1 and verse 2. You see Jesus preparing after the baptism, preparing now for this test or this temptation Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. So the Spirit of God leads him by his will into this eventual confrontation. The word for test and temptation are the same. We use test or temptation on the basis of context. From the standpoint of God, Jesus is being tested or proven. From the standpoint of the devil, he's being tempted. Jesus was led up by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Now, one might pause and ask the question, or or wonder. I'm sure everyone does. If Jesus is God, though, was this really a true temptation or test? Could Jesus truly be tempted in this way? Well, there's some mystery, no doubt. But Jesus lived his life as a man, not as a Marvel superhero. Um, He had to be exposed to the same temptations as any other human being. Now, it's true. By virtue of his divine nature giving aid to his human nature, he did not fall in the end. But yet, mysteriously, he still has to hold up under the same human senses he has and the temptations that come his way. He's hungry. He's legitimately hungry. And there's food there that he could take and defy God's call or trust in God's provision. So he undergoes the experience of human hunger and recognizes the sense and the pull towards eating the food. Satan comes to him in this time of starvation, something we could recognize and appreciate. And he enters this time of temptation with limitations that humanity brings. Hendrickson captures it pretty well. The sense of need, the consciousness of being urged by Satan to satisfy the need, the knowledge of having to resist the tempter, and the struggle to which this gave rise was real even for Christ. This is why the author of Hebrews is careful to remind us. He became, because he himself had suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He understands the press of temptation. He doesn't have the internal corruption we have. That's where he represents us in righteousness. In Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Back to the passage. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness now to be tempted by the devil. The first Adam met Satan in the lush and beautiful Garden of Eden, the mark of all God's goodness and provision. But the garden was lost by the first Adam. So here Jesus goes to the place where they left off, the wilderness. Whereas the pre-fall garden setting was the home to harmony of humans and beasts. And God himself, the post-fall wilderness here, this is the place of wild animals in danger in the sense of aloneness now for mankind. The wilderness is also where Israel faced temptation for 40 years and failed. Jesus is the second Adam, And there's another theme that we should see unfold. He's not just the second Adam. He's also the new Israel. You're going to notice the passages that he quotes in just a little bit are all passages about commands given to Israel, the people of God who are supposed to show the glory of God, and these commands they failed at. So Jesus not only captures the new Adam, also the new Israel in the context of the passage. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. It seems so subtle, but this is a powerful summation of where he was left after this, fe- this time of fasting. He goes from his baptism to a test with Satan, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him, leads him out to the wilderness, and there he becomes equipped for this spiritual battle that he will undergo. His active obedience, obeying the commands of God. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he's hungry. The significance of fasting, let's not forget, because this translates as well. Fasting reduces us to a realization of how much we really depend on God and how much we need Him. Fasting makes us realize what is most important. Jesus prepares to meet Satan by fasting. He models dependence on God. Here, God the Son, depending on God the Father for strength to face the tests, the temptations of the devil. Brothers and sisters, uh, we always have to be in preparation for these temptations to come. If Jesus had to prepare, how much more do you think you and I have to prepare? Part of that preparation is, is being here now with other believers under the word. Uh, partaking in the means of grace that build us up. But you can see this is to be a a, a perpetual preparation process we're in because our temptations are constantly besetting us. Jesus following the leading of the Holy Spirit here now is ready to resist the tests, the temptations. Let's look at each of them in particular. You see verse 3 to verse 10 embodies three different Temptations, as they're called. It says in verse three, after he'd been through this forty days of fasting and he was hungry, and the tempter came. You notice that the one tempting, literally, is what it says in the first verse, verse three. I should say, Luke in his gospel calls him right up out of the gate, the diabolos, uh, the slanderer, the accuser, the devil. Uh, Later in this passage, Jesus calls him Satan. That means adversary. This is Lucifer, a person, a personage, a demonic personage. Not a myth, not a fake, not a concept, but an actual fallen archangel who fell from heaven while mounting a rebellion against God. It's the same devil who tempted Adam in the garden, that serpent of old, as John says in Revelation, now coming to Jesus, trying to get him to believe or doubt about God the way Adam and Eve did. After Jesus had been fasting, do you notice the subtlety after 40 days? And the tempter came. It's like he waited for that time. In fact, the best way I could describe it is hunting coyotes. How is that possible? What is the connection? Well, I don't know if you've done this before. It's one of my favorite things to do when it's really cold. And what you do is it's pretty creepy, but coyotes are creepy. And so what you do is, you literally, I have a speaker, an electronic speaker, that I set out 100 yards in front of me, and I start playing a wounded rabbit. Sounds terrible. And after time, inevitably, coyotes will start coming. They'll creep along the edges of the woods. You won't see them right away. They're trying to ascertain how wounded is the animal. Where is the animal? They try and they have incredible senses about them. Their sense of smell is excellent too. That's why you put them 100, 100 yards out because they'll come downwind to try to smell the wounded animal. They creep in when that animal is most vulnerable. And the tempter came. That's what the devil does. He looks for when we're wounded, when we're hurt, when we're tired, when we're exhausted. And the devil here, at this point, when Jesus meets him, is far more cunning than the time he met Adam and Eve. There's thousands of years now for him to observe humankind. He's not an old, ugly, grotesque, skinny little pot red-faced, pitchfork-wielding Halloween devil. That's not who the devil of Scripture is. This is the beautiful, powerful angel of light that no person could confront on their own. And he comes to Jesus in a state of starvation and the tempter came. And now he'll give three different tests he'll tempt him three different ways and I want you to notice not only how Jesus passes the test that Adam failed but also pay close attention to the approach he takes as example for us in our resistance to the world the flesh and the devil and the temptations that come upon us first verse three the tempter came and said to him if you are the son of God, now what did God just tell him? You are my beloved son. If you are really the son of God, the devil says, then what are you staying hungry for? You, if you're the son of God, you have great privilege. You have great power. Just turn these stones to bread. Aren't you hungry? Are you re- what father would actually starve you like this? The devil was trying to get Jesus to doubt his own sonship. Why has God, your supposed father, denied you this food? Remember, by the way, back to the garden, what did the devil say back then? He sticks with what works. He said, did God really say you couldn't eat this? You couldn't even touch it? Why can't you eat from the tree? He just doesn't want you to have it all. He wants to deny you something. He knows if you eat it, you're going to be like he is. Verse 3 of our passage, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If Jesus did this, it would prove that he does not trust God's provisions and plans for the mission that has been set before him. He would jump ahead to satiate himself, because I can, when there's particular purpose for everything that's happening here on route to the cross. Turning the stones to bread would mean he wasn't waiting on God, trusting in God, finding his sustenance in his relationship with the Father. Jesus was standing against the devil as our representative in that moment, the second Adam. As the second Adam, he would have to depend on God for food, not the suggestions of Satan. Verse 4, he, he responds now using a quote from Deuteronomy 8. But he answered, it is written, the Bible says, Scripture declares, man shall not live by bread alone, Satan, but rather by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's speaking to the authority and the sufficiency of God's word and promises over the lies of Satan, the flesh, and the world. You cannot get more practical than this, brothers and sisters. What's happening here? It happens all the time to us. Thankfully, our representative here, where it all counts, he stands against this. You know, Jesus could have used many scriptures But he chooses Deuteronomy 6 and 8 because the immediate audience would recognize the failure of Israel to be that shining light they were supposed to be to the world. They failed at these promises. They did not trust in God's word alone. They were consistently given over to idolatry in alliance with the world in their flesh. And so by using these specific passages, he's calling everyone to himself. So you can't say, I was born in Israel, so I'm right with God. No, Israel failed. There's only one faithful Israelite who ever lived. It's the new Israel, Jesus himself. All the promises of God to Israel are fulfilled in Jesus, the only one who kept all the standards. So much wrapped up in this confrontation with Satan. But this isn't the only one. It says in verse 5, the second temptation, then the devil. Pause. The devil is relentless. He will not stop at once. You, you, you find victory once, he will be right back another angle, another way. And then again and again and again until glory, that's what will happen. It only stops here because God the Son can say, Be gone. But let's look at the temptation, the second one. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Scholars debate a bit about did the, did the devil bring him? to a vision of these things, or literally up to the top, we don't know for sure. Calvin says it's probably a vision. Whatever the case, God could do whatever he wants to do, and the devil takes him to this vantage point, and he said to him, if you were the Son of God, throw yourself down. That'd be 180 feet. Uh, For reference, the steeples may be 115, so much higher than that. Throw yourself down, because don't forget, Jesus, in Psalm 91, it says... If you're the son of God, he'll command his angels to save you. If you throw yourself off, you can, you're going to be fine because the, the angels are going to come and protect you. It says, on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You're not going to actually hit. Come on, Jesus. Give a show of this truth that you think is true, that you're really God. If you're really God's son you can do this and all will be well, right? He's misquoting and misusing Scripture to manipulate Jesus to do his bidding. All the while trying to sow seeds of doubt in the Son about the Father. The believer must be equipped with Scripture in here. Not just to say as a formula or a mantra. You've got to know what it means. Because there will be efforts by the world, the flesh, and the devil to contort the actual meaning of Scripture and actually use it against you. So there has to be a depth of knowledge in your discipleship to recognize this. The believer must be equipped with Scripture in a deeper way than surface. Jesus says to him, verse 7, Again, the Bible says, Again, this is what's true by God's word. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I'm not going to jump off here and make a false vow that God never made that he's just going to save me from doing something rash, stupid, reckless. Don't put God to, don't think you can leverage God. God, if you get me out of this, I'll believe in you. You cannot put the Lord your God to the test. That's a dangerous thing to say, by the way. God, if you only bend to my will and realize how sovereign I really am and wise I am, then I'll follow you. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Whatever you're quoting, Satan, you're trying to make me test God and we shall not do such a thing. We know what his word commands. You know, Adam in the garden failed to trust this. Hey, if you eat this, you'll be like him and he knows it. Go ahead, eat it. You can, you can know what he knows. The third temptation, the last one, verse 8. Again, the author wants us to see the relentless attacks of the devil. They just keep coming in waves. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. This is, this is an appeal for glory, to, to receive glory now. It's true, Jesus is the king of kings, but he must go to the cross first. The Messiah on route to full kingship. He can't skip over the cross and do the mission that God gave him. But the devil's saying, take the glory that's yours now. Let me show you all my kingdoms. Because to some degree, there was given to Satan a period of time where he is the prince of the power of the air and over these things. So he takes him to this high mountain. He says, "All of these I will give you." I wonder what he shows him. Now he goes to the top mountain. He maybe could see for a long way. He could see the Roman Empire in all of its human glory, you might say. He could maybe see to the Turkish Empire or know of it or see it in a vision, because that was going on at the same time in the first century. And if you, if they went far to the east, they would have seen the great dynasties of the Orient that were there in the first century. He maybe got a glimpse of the future. Empires of the earth, the British umpire that would come. How about the American empire? What things did he see in all the glory of man? How dim that really is compared to the glory of God. But the devil says, take it all now. Take your glory now. Skip over that thing that you're to do to harm yourself. Don't do that. What father would... It? All these doubts trying to give to the Messiah in the response of Christ, being bent towards fulfilling the mission that his father had given him. Then Jesus said to him, with only the authority that Christ could have, be gone Satan, because the Bible says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. I'm not going to worship you Place second to you. And by allusion here at least, he's saying he himself is the God man. The first Adam fell prey to the temptation to be like God. Don't listen to God. Listen to what I'm saying. Listen to me, I'm superior to God. And so Adam worshiped the devil instead of God. That's why we're children of wrath, sons and daughters of the devil until we're not till we're under the second Adam. And here the second Adam is tested with the same thing. All these kingdoms I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And the second Adam, praise be to God, would have no part in bowing to Satan. Our own our new representative resisted. He repelled the devil. Be gone Satan, for it is written you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In the five best verses or words of this passage, verse 11, then the devil left him. And the devil will leave you too if you rest upon the work of Christ and the word of his promise. He will leave you too. He'll come back and then you rest upon the finished work of Christ and the word of his promise again and again and again. And that's the import of the last part of verse 11 because the angels come sort of like the end of a big game where everyone's celebrating what's been finished. The angels came and were ministering to Christ. No doubt he's eating. He's being refreshed. He has stood the test. Paradise is reopened. Satan's goal was to stop Jesus from doing the work of the Messiah, to stop him from going to the cross, to stop him from redeeming us. Paul, looking back at this, wrote in Romans, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, For the judgment following one trespass brought about condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Jesus, the gift himself, his righteousness, brought justification, to be justified right with God through him. For, he goes on, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, the first Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, the second Adam, Christ Jesus. The big picture is glorious, and you could bask in that all day. It elevates your worship, just knowing that he's the second Adam and he's accomplished it. But remember, the second point, that second level, that's so practical for us. On a practical level, I hope you all gathered what are the tactics of the devil. He comes to us when we're weak. He'll come to us after a spiritual high. We're not thinking, oh, we've defeated that one sin. He's there for another one. The devil's relentless. The devil will cause you to doubt God's love for you. You'll wonder, am I really one of God's children? I sinned so badly. Am I really one of God's children? How could it be? And the devil loves to hammer you with that guilt. The guilt that's been taken away in the righteousness of Christ credited to you. The devil will cause you to doubt God's word. You know, the world doesn't think this is very, this, this really is, makes sense, not relevant anymore. Maybe it's not, maybe this is a little too much what the word of God says. Maybe the world's smarter about this. The devil will make us doubt God's goodness. Does he really love you if you have to go through this trauma? His justice, that's unfair that this is happening to me. What, what God would, and the devil wants us to question in his grace. He'll make us doubt God's goodness, his grace. And this is where we are in need of God's word and promises, and we are in need of the Holy Spirit's help to understand it and to apply it. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says something that connects directly with this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So, in this tax season, when you're tempted to deceive or to cheat, draw from Christ's victory. Go to God for aid to fight off this temptation. Or when you're tempted to lust, in all the possible ways that can happen today especially, draw from Christ's triumph on your behalf so that you can resist. When you're tempted to be jealous of what other people have, go to Christ's obedience here and draw from that to say no to this. When you're drawn to gossip or to speak ill of other brothers and sisters, go to Christ in his victory over the devil, and see that victory realized in your flesh against your flesh when those various temptations come against you. This gives the fullness of what the writer of Hebrews says all the more meaning. He wrote, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, in light of that, listen to what he says next. Let us then, in light of who he is in his victory, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace and help in a time of need. Go to Christ, the one who has already purchased you the victory, when you are weighed down with temptation. But what if I still fail? Because I still fail. What if I mess up? What if I give in to this temptation? Well, the Apostle John, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, helps us there too. John, in his first epistle, says, My little children, children of God, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you might not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus represented you that day with the devil. And he represents you now, at the second, also. Let's pray. Lord, what a great victory this is that we have just read again. Lord, we draw upon this victory of our Savior, our righteous representative, to deal with the temptations that are besetting us right now. Every one of us can think of some area right now where, oh Lord, we're so tempted to sin. It just would be easier if we just sin, we think. Lord, I pray right now that by your grace, you would comfort your people by the ministry of your Holy Spirit to resist whatever that temptation to sin is. Lord, please help us in this way so that by the growth, the spiritual maturing, the sanctification of your people, that you would receive all the glory that you deserve. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.